is alive. Glad you're here today. Good crowd today. Appreciate you being here. Appreciate this being important to you as we assemble on a Sunday like this, on the first day of the week as we partake of those emblems, as we remember the death and sacrifice of our Lord, our only hope, our only salvation, our only promise of life is in Him as we know. But today we want to think about something, and as it presses forward, I think within our society and our time, there is a message that needs to be heard, and that is the message of that song. There is a God, and He is alive. But the question remains in the minds of so many, who is this God? Who is this God? Moses presented himself to Pharaoh. Are we, we don't have a PowerPoint? Thank you. There it is. All right. Now it came up. All right. I just noticed it wasn't back there. What am I going to do if I don't have anything to look at back there? I might have to look at you. That, oh, isn't that a blessing? Or you might have to look at me. That'd be a whole lot worse. Anyway, the question is, who is this God? Who is this God? Well, when Moses went and presented himself to Pharaoh, as you know, God, in that confrontation with Moses there on the, uh, out in the countryside, and there he and Moses with the burning bush, and Moses goes to the bush and take off your shoes for you're on holy ground and so forth. I want you to go to Egypt, blah, blah, blah. And he goes through all this business, and even Moses asking the question that was there. But when Moses finally comes to Pharaoh, when he and Aaron present themselves to Pharaoh, They've got a message for Pharaoh. They've got a message for Pharaoh. That God has given instructions for Pharaoh to let Israel leave Egypt. Now they kind of cage it in a certain way. You need to go and worship and so forth. But they tell Pharaoh to let Israel leave Egypt. And Pharaoh's response is classic. It's a classic one. Because it's that question of who gives you the right to do this. The question basically comes out, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice? And isn't that the question of society? Isn't that the question of our times? Who is God? Who is this God that we should obey his voice? In other words, he was saying, I don't know him, and I don't feel like I need to do what he says. I mean, Pharaoh's a powerful man. He can choose what he wants to. He can choose who lives and who dies. Should I obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And maybe inside of us, especially those of us who who worship God and we appreciate and we know some things about the Bible and so forth and we've drawn on this, when we hear something like that, hello, when we hear something like that, either my ears just picked up or something changed. When we hear something like that, I think we're amazed at the audacity, at the audacity of someone who would say that, who would speak about God, who would speak to God in such a way as that? If you consider the Israelites and you go down the road a little ways, they were in such a state about God that they didn't even think it was proper to even use his name. They were very careful about it. They used that, that four-letter thing that we've often used, Y-H-W-H, or sometimes it comes out as J-H-V-H, and that's where we get the name Jehovah or Yahweh. They wouldn't even use his name. They wouldn't even say his name out loud. But Pharaoh says, who is he that I should obey his voice? So there's a question I want you to ask yourself. Ask yourself the question. How well do I 
know God. How well do I know God? I think most of us have some sort of image of God and what God is like. We may not see him in the vision of Michelangelo. We may not see him as a picture on a chapel somewhere. But at the same time, I don't think we envision him as George Burns. Some of you are old enough to recognize that. We don't think it looks like Morgan Freeman. I'm not sure what we think God really looks like. Think about it. Even Abraham, as close as Abraham was to God, and as close as Moses was to God, Abraham saw some human form of God as he came with the other messengers that went to Sodom, it appears. But I don't think he saw the glory of God, not then. And Moses, he said, I need to be able to see who's leading us. And God says, really, you can't, but I'll show you my back. Now, whatever that meant, I'll show you my back. I think it's probably a little bit, and I don't want to get too far afield in this and, and lose the train of thought in this. But it was kind of like when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and, and they talk about the Holy Spirit and Jesus basically tells him, you don't really see the Holy Spirit, you see the effects of it. It's like the wind. You don't see the wind, you see the effects of the wind. When it stirs up the dirt or when the leaves blow or something like that, that's when we recognize the wind. We feel it. We know it's there. But we don't really see the wind. Maybe it's something like that. I, I don't know. You can take that for whatever it's worth. Now, the Israelite elders, the Israelite elders, when they were with Moses, they saw, they saw a magnificently descriptive scene. But when you read about what they saw, you don't get a picture of God. They didn't really see God to be able to describe God. Even Stephen, even that martyr Stephen in Acts 7, when he proclaimed that great message of people and got them so angry and they're taking him out and they're throwing stones at him and putting him to death, what does Stephen? Stephen tells them in the midst of this as he's laying all this beautiful stuff out for him, he says, as he looks into heaven, what does he see? It says he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. But he doesn't talk about God. He talks about seeing Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God. I think there are so many others who've seen angels and messengers. But the image of God is something that remains somewhat of a mystery, somewhat questionable to us in many ways. And as close as I think we're going to ever come in this life is like when Philip asked Jesus in John 14. When Philip asked Jesus, to show us, show us the Father, and, and that'll be enough for us. Please show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And Jesus' response to them was pretty plain, wasn't it? When you've seen me, people, when you read about him, when you understand him, when you know him, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. A dear lady years ago, and I probably told you this before, a dear lady coming out of a class, she said to me, no, it was after a Sunday morning sermon. I'll get it right. Let me think. That was 40 years ago. Okay, anyway. Coming out of the service, she said, with Jesus, I'm very comfortable, but with God scares me. And I think a lot of people want to see this great separation. God is this, and Jesus is this. And Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Who is this God? And I believe that we as Christians need to, and the world needs to be able to see with our faith, see with our hearts, see with our understanding the nature of God. Listen to these words. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we've got the Apostle Paul. He's in Athens. He's there among some of the elite thinkers of the day. At least that's the way they would see themselves. And while he's talking to them in that place called Mars Hill, among the Areopagus, he is there speaking. And it said, while Paul waited for them at Athens, as we come down to that point, leading up to that. And when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. What's he talking to them about? God. He's talking to them about God. He's talking to them about Jesus. And then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Those are philosophies of the day. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for which you are bringing some strange thing to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Now, I'll let you read the rest of it yourself, because he goes on to proclaim to them a lot of things about God, but it's the question that's in their mind, and I think it's the question that really is in the world, whether it's voiced or not, and they look at, look at us, and they say, who is this God, and we better have an answer. We better have an answer to who this God is. There are a lot of people who look at the Bible. There are a lot of people who see the Bible. There are a lot of people who proclaim to be Christians, but they don't have a clue about God. I think there are a lot of people who sit in pews just like us, who sit here on a Sunday morning, who sit in pews on any given Sunday, and they're still wondering who in the world and what in the world is this God. It's invading the territory of our hearts and our minds. And the deterioration of faith is not so much a doubt of the Bible, It's not even a disbelief in Jesus as great and good and benevolent, but it's a deterioration of God in the mind and the hearts of people. So Paul launches into his message. And in the midst of it, he says, you know, when I was going through the marketplaces, I saw this altar to the unknown God, to the unknown God. Coming from a religion-infused generation, which I believe I've come from, and many of you too. I come from a religion-infused generation and a Bible-thumping family. I mean, it, it, even in my day, it was, it was all right to bring your Bible to school. It was all right to say a prayer in school. We began days with prayers in school. We had religious programming sometimes in our schools. It was all right to call, now pardon this, but it was all right to call that program, that musical program that was put on in December, a Christmas program. 
We even did a musical in high school each year that was entitled The Night of Miracles was about the birth of Jesus. That's why I say I believe we were a much more religious-infused generation. And I come from a, and you pardon the expression, Bible-thumping family. It was part of our lives. It was. It's hard to imagine God being unknown to the unknown God. And friends, I want you to understand that there's a real difference between dismissing dismissing and disobeying God. There are a lot of people who believe in God to a degree, but they disobey him. They just don't care. We'll, we'll close him off. It's kind of like your mother said, don't do this, and you know you're not supposed to do it, but you do it anyway because you're going to dismiss your mother. You know what she said, but you're not going to do it because she doesn't have the authority in your life. And I think a lot of people look at God that way. They know to some degree what God has said, but they're going to dismiss him anyway. Does that happen to you and me? Sometimes on a small scale, hopefully not on a large scale, but sometimes people on a very large scale. But there is a difference between dismissing and disobeying God and not knowing God, never having heard of him. Moses kind of implies that that God was not well known in Israel or in Egypt, and Pharaoh tells us that, but there's a lot there that God is really not well known among the Israelites, who, who am I going to say is sending me? Who am I going to say is that uh, tell them has sent me? And how will they know that I am authoritative in that regard? Read that third chapter of Exodus and you see exactly what I'm saying. And I think he's saying the people really don't know who they're crying out to. And when I go to them, will they believe that it has anything, any bearing in it? And the people of Athens knew many perceived gods. They had ideas about all kinds of gods. But they did not know God through his work in Jesus. It was unknown to them. A strange guy bringing strange doctrines, they said. And their gods had largely been generated. For they were like just about any society. And we find it in ours today as well, that in a society where there is an absence of a God, there is an absence of a God, a divine being, where there is that absence of of the divine being, in that society, in that civilization, we will invent, create, generate a God. And sometimes many gods. Some of them derived from some background of God. We have, there are many religions, even some of the Native American religions rely upon a great spirit that when you read about him, has many similarities to the God that we know. But Paul preached a message about the unknown God. For that was a very religious society. They had shrines and temples all over the place. From Mars Hill, you could look up above them and you can see the Acropolis in Athens where there are abundant temples that are there. Some of them still partially standing today. Some of the best known structures of the ancient world are standing there. He perceived that they were a very religious people. Those temples, those altars, and shrines were all over the place. They were found in most of their towns and their cities in abundance. And he could point out they were very religious. Some translations say superstitious. Really the word there carries they're a very religious people. And maybe we haven't gotten that far. 
For I think we still build shrines to whatever we perceive our God to be. If you look at the largest structures in any community, in any town, you'll find that they are shrines to what we believe is most important among us and a kind of God in that way. When I was growing up in Tulsa, you could go down old Highway 66, 11th Street in Tulsa, and there was a place, there was a place at about 11th Street in Boulder, in that block area, 11th Street in Boulder in Tulsa, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a place called Cathedral Square, where there were these stately structures that were built, and there were several of them there. They are not what they once were. They are not filled like they once were and so forth in many ways. But these prominent structures, it was a statement on the city. It was a statement on the people that they held religion in high regard in their community. And that's what Paul was saying about these people. But at the same time, the message shared by Paul was something they had never heard. It was about a foreign God and a resurrection from the dead and something that really made them struggle as you get a little bit further into his study and into his presentation. They listen to him for a while about this God and have no real problems with this until he comes to this point about this death and this resurrection. And then they begin to say, this is crazy. At least many of them did. Because there was a difference in the message and a difference in this God. They were used to gods who had powers that were limited and their abilities were limited and their morality was was almost questionable from the beginning. Their gods were personifications of their own desires, of their own senses, of their own wonders, of their own weaknesses. And sometimes of the things that they would like to be their strengths. There was a difference, a true difference in the message that Paul was bringing them and then God he was presenting to them. God, as we know him, was not only unknown to them, but also unique in his power. As I said, especially in the resurrection from the dead. So back to the beginning, back to the very beginning. And the song that we sang with such enthusiasm and such vigor, the song that we sang that Josh led so well, our God, he is alive. There is a God and he is alive. And Brother Dykus, who wrote this song, one of the many songs that he wrote and the most familiar of his songs, was writing in response to a society in the 1960s, as he writes early in the 1970s, he was writing this song with the idea in contrast to the idea that God is dead. And they didn't mean that some being that was alive is dead. They meant that the concept of God was dead. And he wrote this song to remind us, our God, he is alive. But he's not the first. He wasn't the first. In Daniel 5, there's a story about Belshazzar and the things that happened, the handwriting on the wall. The children know about this. We've studied it in our Bible classes, and you can probably even tell the words that were there. But listen to the words of Daniel. Listen to the words of Daniel as he confronts Belshazzar. And he says, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear, or know, 
And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Now I know, I know we live in a time where people say, well, the Bible is just the Bible. You're not going to prove to me there is a God from the Bible if I don't believe the Bible. And there's some truth to that. You want to go to people and prove that there is a God. You want to pick up the Bible and say, let me tell you in the Bible. See, in the beginning, God, there it is. There's proof that God, I say, well, show it to me. Show it to me otherwise. I think it's there. If we look around us, if we're willing to look at all, if we're willing to see the world and the life that we have at all, we begin to realize there is plenty of testimony of the living God. It's captured in the Psalms when he says the life of all creation is is proclaiming the immeasurable creator. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. What's he saying? Everything about us testifies that there is a God. I know you've done it at some time or another. I was standing in the backyard last night, taking the dog out for his last little jaunt before the night. Took a moment to look up, and the large specter of the moon was there. Not a full moon, but the large specter of the moon was there, some 240-some-odd thousand miles away, and all its glow was there. And it was just getting dark enough that the stars were beginning to come out. And the light that had traveled for how many ages to make it to there that I could see it with my eyes. And I say, isn't this, and all the order and the beauty of it that's been there from the beginning of creation, from the time God placed them, isn't that a testimony of God and a a proclamation of his glory? It is. Otherwise, we have no real explanation for it. For the order, the system, the beauty, the wonder, the majesty, the endurance of it all. And even the vital living nature of humanity in the midst of a created world. Yes, we can go to Genesis 1 and 26 and God said, let us create man in our image. But then that's just words. But we find ourselves of all the creation. Look at yourself. We find ourselves in the place of all creation. We find ourselves as unique. We may have biological processes that are just like many other animals, but we're different. God made us different. It's not by accident. It was not just some flaw. We didn't, just, we didn't rise up from the apes or some fish that made its way out of the water. That's not how it happened. God made us like this. The intelligence, the ability, the very nature that is in us, the inquisitive nature, the view of the future, everything about us says there is something greater that brings about a creation, and there is a God. And Jesus, and Jesus, as we said, Philip asked, he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father and the great testimony of who and what God is, is in him. He's the express image of God, Hebrews 1 and verse 3. In him, the fullness of God dwells, for, uh, Colossians 1. I know people substitute a lot of things for God, but only one is God and only one is alive. 
That's why Paul would write it like he did to the church in Ephesus that was so, so affected by a world that, that didn't believe in the one God, but so affected. But he wanted them to understand. He wanted them to hold tight. There's one God, one Father, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Ephesians 4, 6. He wanted to get it across. So what I want to say to you, I want to say to you this morning, we know him. We do know him, and we can know him. We may sometimes not know all we want to know about him. We may not know everything about him. And in a sense, maybe it's a lot like people we've heard about and people we have met. And we know some things about them. But I think there are people that we really, really know. So let me offer to you. We can see God. We can see God in We can see him in all the life around us, past and present. Disregard everything that's said about the changes and the things that are taking place and just take it for the flow that's there. I'm I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying take it for the flow of time and life that has come for the thousands of years that we know man has been on the earth. Take that and look at it and we begin to see that all life around us, past and present, talking to Paul on the way in this morning, and I said, have you thought about how the world has changed in the last 200 years? I'm not giving you an exact date, but you know, for thousands upon thousands of years, how did we get light? It was either daylight or fire. How did we get heat, the sun or fire? And then a couple of hundred years ago, I guess we can attribute Benjamin Franklin a little bit earlier We began to experiment with electricity, basic rudimentary at first, and then, say, a hundred years ago when we began to realize that we could electrify the world, we could put lights in places, we we can bring light out of the darkness of the night, we can be places. You can go out into your streets at night and you can look around and there are lights everywhere. We can pick up a piece of equipment and it's electrified. We can put batteries in it and keep it going without even plugging it into the wall. In all life around us, past and present, we see a progression of things that have been here from the beginning. And it's all a testimony of God in all its progression. Secondly, we can see God in what we've come to know about Jesus. Let me just give you one. I'm not going to emphasize the, the death and the resurrection. That one's plain. What God would do that. But I said I was only going to give you one. I think it's in the words of Peter as he speaks to the household of Cornelius. One of the greatest testimonies of God is in the simple words in the description of Jesus in verse 38 of Acts chapter 10 who went about doing good. Let the word good sink in. Why? the very nature of God and what we come to know about Jesus is the doing of good. And thirdly, as I've already said, I've already said, what about ourselves? When we look in the mirror, when we see ourselves each day, we may take for granted what we see. We sometimes wish we could change some things about it for sure. Well, maybe you don't, but I do. There there are things we see and, and, and they... 
they ought to amaze us every day. The very nature of us and what we need and what we do and what we can think and what we are in so many ways. The psalmist was right. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. Amazing. I watched all three of my children being born. I watched them grow. I saw their ups and their downs. I saw the richness and the, and the struggles they had. I saw the life that was in them. And every day I pray about it. Ourselves, our lives, the growth, the life that we have. And sometimes when you reach a certain point in life, you look back and you say, how in the world did I get here? We're amazed at the life that is us. And don't dismiss, fourthly, the daily providence. It ought to amaze us. It ought to amaze us that God provided in a world, a living, vital world, provided the things that we needed. And in the progression of time, the things that we needed at every change and every age of time, I've still got faith in that. The daily providence... In Matthew 6, Jesus points it out in verse 11 as he refers to it as our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It's more than just a loaf of bread to eat. We're talking about the things that sustain our lives every day. And finally, that's what you were saying, finally. As Kyle alluded to it, the hope that is yet before us. The things we endure are not worthy to be compared with what will be revealed in us. Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters that you're ever going to read because it points not only to where we are, but where we are going. The hope of what is yet before us. Don't tell me there's not something in you that longs for eternity. Don't tell me there's not something in you that's satisfied with this is it. There is no more. The hope of what is yet before us is a striving desire and basic to the concept of who and what we are. That's just five things. And we can see God in all of them. The list could go on and on, but I'm, I would spend your time and you're, you've probably listened long enough. I would just say to you, if any of us fail to see and know the living God, if we're still saying, who is this God, just because we cannot draw him with a crayon or a pencil, if any of us fail to see and know this living God, and that's what Peter called him, Matthew 16, 16, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, it is simply by our unwillingness to do so. So maybe we do live in a world that does not know or acknowledge God for who he is or what he is. Sometimes we tend to act in a way that the world does, even in our lives. But friends, if we ever pick up the Bible and we read those first words that are recorded for us there, we can't help but recognize in the beginning, 
God. Who is this God? He is that he is. He is the beginning of all. He is the source of everything that we know of life. This morning we're going to sing again a song of encouragement. Let it be a song of invitation as well. Maybe you've considered a need in your life. If you have, we're ready to assist you in whatever that might be. If you need to respond publicly this morning, let us help you with that. We're ready to baptize. If you've considered your need and never been baptized into Christ, you're standing outside of salvation, outside of hope. If you've not been baptized for the remission of your sins, if you've not obeyed the gospel in that regard, if you've not surrendered your life in that way to Christ, that's what it prescribes in Scripture and lays it out for us. Buried with him by baptism into death, raised up to walk in newness of life is the way Paul describes it. It's a beautiful sense of a death to life and a resurrection in Christ. If there's a need this morning that you have, let us help you and assist you with that. All you need to do is come while we stand, while we sing together.